the passing of the child, the preservation ceremony is completed. Please return to your daily tasks, and may this be a lesson in preservation to all of us. Tread lightly, and good night. Department of Population Broadcast, Boulder, Colorado, 200 years after the bombs were dropped on American seaboards. My name is Valaria, and I don't know where I am. I feel like I am made of layers. The outermost layer is freezing from the cold air seeping in through the cracks of the crate. Then a middle ground, followed by a sweaty, hot center in my chest. I cradle the tiny bundle there, keeping him safe, warm. It's all that matters now. The tracks are rickety, and the train shakes my body for me like it's trying to help. I pull the tiny boy closer, and while trying to keep him cocooned in my arms as best I can, pull aside the thin fleece that was given to me, the hospital gown that I am still wearing underneath, and offer him my right breast. Thankfully, he latches on. The only food in the wooden box are a few potatoes. They're hard, and I've been eating them along the edges. Whoever prepared them didn't have the time or the expertise to boil a potato. Roman cries from in between the folds covering my chest, and I try to readjust, but I'm tall and the space is limited. Anyone there? A woman's voice. I try not to move. Pull the fleece over Roman's head best I can to muffle his whimpers. Please, Lechon. Please be quiet. No one can know we're here. Roman does, like he can hear my thoughts or feel the fear emanating from my skin. He goes quiet, and so does the woman on the train with us. Even though it was his fault someone has discovered we are here, I can't get angry at him. A thin sliver of light slips through, and I lean back to let it illuminate his tiny, wrinkled face. He's smiling up at me, a funny, crooked smile. Then he makes a little sucking sound, like he's pleased with his meal and life in general. He has my eyes. I regret nothing. The sliver of light disappears, reappears, disappears again. We must be passing through a forest. I let my body slump backwards. I can feel slivers of the cheap wood dig into the back of the fleece, the wall of the crate resisting my weight. Within minutes, we are both asleep. I didn't mean to get pregnant. I never removed my implant. Never tampered with it. Some do. Some so desperate for a child. After their application for pregnancy is denied, they try to cut it out. Moments of insanity the night the application results are given out. There's always at least one or two in every group. But there wasn't a single scratch on my wrist. And after the positive pregnancy test, there were hours and hours of interrogation. In the end, they believed me and my husband, took the implant out, tested it, found a faulty valve, called it a miracle. Because conceiving a child by pure chance is considered divine intervention, it means that he himself wanted me to bear a child, and that the child has a special purpose. The child is considered holy. I was to carry the child to term, and once it was born it would enter into the flock of holy children. This was the only way the holy purpose of the child could be carried out. 
The holy children are raised to become soldiers to assist in the reconstruction. Our child would receive the best of everything, far better than anything we could give him or her. It also didn't hurt that we would receive an extra 200 kcals a day for an entire year, reward for being the seed and the vessel of one of his children, 500 kcals for me while I was still pregnant. We took it. Never spoke to each other about not taking it. We were rule followers through and through. Besides, the reconstruction is more important than the life of a lone person, and those extra kcals were hard to turn down. The only thing left of the potato is the core, and it's hard as a rock, despite the fact that I rolled it along the ground for what seemed like forever. I have to use my molars to shave off some of the earthy root and swallow it down, trying not to choke back up what feels like sawdust going down my throat. The bottle of water is somewhere in the dark, and I find it. Take small sips. I'm not sure how long we've been in the box, but I know we're far away from New York by now. It smells different. More like pine, less like ash. The train starts to slow, and I drop the water bottle, pull Roman closer to me. The train sighs, and it feels like we sink towards the ground for a moment before we come to a complete stop. What's happening? The same woman again, right next to us. I know I should keep my mouth shut, but I'm scared too. I don't know. I whisper back. Why are we stopping? Her voice is louder now. Too loud. I don't know. I'm sure it's fine. This is probably just part of the plan. My words fast like bullets. I need her to be quiet. I need her to stay calm. The outside of my wooden box is labeled Live Animal, so not everyone on our journey is privy to our escape. What is happening? The woman's voice is growing louder, and I need her to shut the fuck up before we get caught. Roman stirs with her rising panic, like he can feel it waft through the air, and starts making squabbling sounds. His sounds could be mistaken for the sounds of an animal, but they also might not. I dig deep to remember what my own mother used to sing to me so long ago, to calm me when I was little. Shush, little lamb, he is watching you from high above. Shush, little lamb, from the scorched earth we will rise and have enough. The lullaby starts spelling out. I'm not sure if the words are the actual words, but they feel close enough and they soothe Roman. Soothe the woman beside us. I can hear her breathing through the thin wood. So close, it feels like I can reach out and touch her. Shush, little lamb. What you have is all you need. Shush, little lamb. No, only some of us need a golden seed. The woman's breathing turns rhythmic, steady. Roman has fallen back asleep slumped in between my breasts. A door opens somewhere close by. Fresh air seeps in, even colder than before, but thick with the scent of dirt and pine. I inhale deeply. We are lifted out of the train and into the back of what I think is a truck. After two days, I give in and urinate into the corner of the crate. 
It's barely a trickle. Roman doesn't seem to be bothered. The same diaper for two straight days. His soft skin is against mine. His pudgy hands explore the valleys of my face. His tuft of black hair smells like home. Even in the crate, that smells like pee. When I turned 18, I submitted my pairing forms just as I was supposed to. I was paired with my husband a week later, and we went to the three-months housing program in North Carolina. We lived together for two months and decided the pairing was good enough for both of us. We liked each other. That's more than most people can say. At the end of the two months, we went for our testing. Cognitive reasoning, reflexes, and a DNA test that would determine if we would be approved for pregnancy. A week later, we found out that we were not. I would not be a wife, but a worker. Just as well, I thought. I never wanted to stay home all day while my husband entered the bureaucracy. I liked the idea of being outside all day, of building houses and fields, of working with my hands to rebuild the country. It sounds silly, but I felt a little bit heroic. We were entered into the lottery for our work assignment. Our posting was not great, or even good, but it was exciting. We were stationed in the Bronx. The Riverdale apartments were roomy, and even though the streets were dirty and the days were often dark, we were all right. We had evenings. We had friends in the apartment. We had each other. We had accepted our duty. We had purpose and were what some might even consider to be happy. Every morning, we reported downstairs, received our 500 kcal breakfast, and piled into a van. We drove 15 minutes along the Harlem River until we got out at 3rd Avenue. Then we'd get into a small boat and row across to 1st Avenue on the Manhattan side. Our job was to find useful material to build more apartments in Riverdale. Wires, metals, anything that was hard to come by elsewhere. For some reason, Harlem had large stockpiles of usable materials in some of the buildings. While we worked through the piles of rubble and broke into old buildings searching, stories were traded about what had happened here long ago, long before I was born, when everyone could choose their own partner and everyone had so much of everything, food, cars, gas, power, and time, so much so that I didn't believe a word of it. During our third week combing through the ruins of Harlem, was the first time I felt something was different. It happened in a strange building with long, empty shelves that ran in rows from the very front to the very back. Thick gloves covering my hands, crouched down, digging through a giant pile of rustic guns and ammunition. Cobwebs floating all around me, dust in a layer so thick, it was clear no one had been there in decades. A strange tiredness came over me, just for a second, and I paused. Paused just for a split second, and then kept right on digging through the pile of guns, but just a little bit more careful then, like all of a sudden it mattered just a little bit more that one of the ancient weapons not decide to fire at me for old time's sake. Then it happened again, while I was rowing back across the river, a wave of exhaustion, then again when I sat down in the van on our way back to the apartment. At home, when the door closed behind me, I rested my hand on my stomach, an urge to protect that hadn't been there before. I checked my calendar, and while my husband went to work the next morning, I got the address of the local population department and went in for a pregnancy test. 
I followed all the rules. I didn't think this would ever happen to me, but once it did, once I knew for sure, it changed me. The thing growing inside of me changed me. I signed the papers for the Holy Child program without hesitation, tried my best to not let myself have second thoughts. The punishment for trying to steal a holy child is the most cruel. Second thoughts were unthinkable, especially if I was trying to protect the thing growing inside of me. But when the doctors examined me, when the soldier implanted the tracker in my shoulder to track me if I tried to run, when my husband and I were rewarded a medal for conceiving a holy child, it was hard to not think of the thing growing inside of me as my own. The medal we received was in the shape of a seed, with a sprout pushing open the seed to escape into the world like it was opening the lid of a tiny box. My husband proudly displayed it in our entry so others could see it when they came by to touch my expanding stomach. I let them do this without reservation. They hadn't seen a pregnant woman since they were children themselves. They came by and touched my stomach and marveled at the metal in the shape of a seed and all I wanted was for the little sprout to go back into the box and stay there forever. It felt safer that way. Two days go by, maybe three. Then the truck stops for a long time. Way longer than its usual stops. It's so quiet that I miss the rumbling of the tires, even miss being knocked around in the crate on rough patches of the road. My knees are so numb they want to kick at things. Roman stretches out his arms, and I smile at him, mouth the word show-off, which makes him smile. We giggle quietly. I bury my face in his tuft of black hair, blow kisses into his neck. To think I almost had to live without him. The truck door opens, and we hold still. Both of us look up, through the biggest crack in the box. Roman doesn't make a sound as we wait to see what happens next. He keeps watch as I do, like we are watching the same fly buzzing through the air, our gazes move in tandem. The crate is lowered onto the ground, lifted then into a smaller van, a sliding door pulls shut. An hour passes, maybe more. Then there's gravel beneath the tires. Gravity pushes me up against the crate wall, like we're climbing a steep hill. We drive into a building, a garage maybe. The small sliver of light disappears completely. The door slides open again. This them? A woman's voice, but not the same as before. Not the woman from the train. Older. Yep, that's them. A man's voice from the front seat. The front door of the car closes. Let's get him out of there then. There's commotion around us. Things are being taken out of boxes, grunting, a square of metal appears under the lid of the box, flush against the wood. The top lifts off, light spills in. There's a bulb above us, the ceiling of a white van. I want to jump up, my legs aching to move. But I wait instead. I don't know where I am, and I don't know these people. After a moment, the ground beneath us sways. Time flew. My body swelled and my belly protruded out in front of me. It felt like I couldn't make it stop even if I wanted it to. I had lost control. Every morning I woke, and it was a morning closer to the sprout slipping out of me 
and into a world I would never be a part of. The contractions came on fast and hard. The only delivery room in the entire Bronx was a population police station 20 blocks north. My husband and some of our neighbors walked me there, then left me there alone. They all had to report for duty early the next morning. Reconstruction waits for no one. The doctor was called. There was no time for sedation or painkillers. It tore through me. While the pregnancy flew by, the delivery did not. Afterwards, I was allowed to feed the boy. The doctors agreed I was in no state to run. I knew the punishment for running, and the second I laid eyes on this tiny creature that was made of me, I knew I would never be able to stand seeing him be harmed. Besides, I was alone. A woman crisscrossing the snow in a hospital gown wasn't going to get very far. I was left to care for him for three full days, allowed to recover, but every moment together... Those second thoughts about letting them take him were harder to control. But I would have let them have my baby. I really would have. I was prepared to give him up and go back to my husband and our life of reconstructing the country. I still felt heroic about what we were doing. But then I named him Roman, a name I had never heard myself. And on the third night, they told me they would be picking him up the next day, and I tried not to cry because I wasn't supposed to be upset. I tried to make it look like tears of joy, but I didn't fool the doctor. When everyone left that night, the doctor left with everyone else, but then he came back. He stood in the doorway, anger playing across his face, but I knew the anger wasn't for me or for Roman. I had healed over the last few days, more than I had let on. The doctor pulled out a surgical kit and removed the tracker from my shoulder, sewed it up, placed the tracker on my pillow. A whole night's head start. Then he pulled out a fleece he'd taken from his wife and draped it around me and Roman. I have friends that can take you far from here, but if you get caught, don't mention my name. If you give me up, more than you know will suffer because of it. I just nodded, ducked down into the back seat of his rusted car. We drove for no more than ten minutes. Then I could hear the sounds of a train, the sighs and the huffs of the engine. You have to be quiet, was all he said as he ushered me into the crate, and with five quick thrusts, the lid was nailed shut. You look like you've been through something. The old woman is sitting next to the man with the big white beard, and they are leaning towards us while Roman and I sit in a large armchair. It's very soft. It's making me sleepy. I'll go get you something to eat. Thank you, I whisper and pull Roman close. I'll go put on some music. The man with the white beard seems nervous, stands and walks out after his wife. I can hear him fidgeting with something. Then a song about a blizzard drifts from the corner of the room. The music seems to relax the man. His shoulders glide down his back, and he puts his hands on his hips. So where are you two from? New York, but I grew up in Colorado. You don't say. The man looks delighted. A smile parts his beard. Is that where we are? Indeed it is. Welcome home, I suppose. The woman comes back in with hot soup, and I eat it so fast it burns my tongue. Then I let Roman latch onto me and he falls asleep. 
I'm so tired, I let the old woman take him, and she places him into a box with a blanket. The first bed of his own. Tonight, Dale will be taking you out to the cabin. I'm not staying here. I don't know why, but I don't want to leave them. I'm sorry, dear, I'm afraid not. You're not the only one who needs... who needs a new home. The woman puts her hand on my knee. But it will be safe there, and Dale will bring you food and medicine every few days. But once you are up there, you can never come back down here. You understand? I just nod. I'm so tired, I want to sleep in the soft armchair, but they are adamant that we need to move before it gets dark. It's not that far, Dale reassures me. Twenty minutes up the mountain, I'll show you where the food will be dropped and how the fire stove works. I say goodbye to the old woman, want to cling to her, smell her skin like I used to smell the skin of my mother, but I don't. Just smile and wave goodbye, with Roman tightly in my arms. We walk for almost half an hour. I am tired, and I'm slow. When we get there, Dale shows me how to use the wood stove, leaves us some of the soup and potatoes for the next few days, points to a tree down the path where the next batch will be hanging from. I don't remember him closing the door. All I can think is how soft the bed is. When I wake, it's dark outside. I look around the room, not much bigger than the size of the bed. The box with the blanket is next to me on the floor, Roman asleep inside of it. I pick him up and wander out into the only other room. The wood stove is still burning. The bag with the food is sitting on a table, big enough for only two chairs. There are no windows cut into the wood. The entire cabin is a block of wood standing in the dense forest. The moon hangs above us from in between the treetops. It's cold out, but we don't mind. I can see the outhouse ten feet away from the hut. In New York, the moon never hung low, never hung at all, because of all the dirt stuck in the sky. Roman and I stare up at it in awe, and we feel safe then, like it's keeping watch. Days pass quickly. We settle in. A year passes in a breath, maybe more. Roman seems to be growing a little bit every day, starts to use his hands to fling things across the room and cracks up crawls across the thick carpet, and when the tassels touch his face, that makes him crack up too. He's such a happy child, it makes me happy just to be with him. He starts to speak, and my new name is Mama. I try not to think of my husband. I'm sure they figured out he had nothing to do with me running off. More days pass, then weeks, months. There's always food hanging from the tree, just as they promised. But I don't talk to Dale again. We never see each other. It would be too dangerous. Then almost a year later, without warning, the food stops. I am standing at the bottom of the tree, and the bag that's usually there isn't. I take a few steps back. Maybe I'm at the wrong tree. Fresh powder covered everything, and all the trees look alike. But none of the other trees have food in them either. I go back inside. Maybe he just forgot or got the days mixed up, and the food will be there in the morning. But it's not. And it's not there at night when I go back to check a second time, and there's no food on the third day, and I want to go down to their house, but something tells me not to. I set up traps around the cabin, vines knotted together into nets hanging from trees, 
Two more days pass. I catch a single rabbit, and its meager frame is enough to keep me from going crazy from hunger, but it doesn't appease it, either. Then, just after sunset on the fifth day, there is a knock on the door. I haven't heard anything other than the babbling of a toddler in so long, the sheer force of the knocking makes my heart stop. Dale would never knock. He would never risk coming here again. Before I can grab Roman and flee to the other room, the door opens. A large man looms in the doorway. I squeeze Roman into my arms as I try not to scream. He's very tall. His hair is almost as dark as Roman's. He doesn't say anything, just stares down at us. The woman and the stolen baby. Are you Valario? He finally breaks the silence. His voice isn't as loud as his knock. He closes the door behind him, and the cold air stops seeping into the warmth of her tiny home. I nod. I can't speak. Dale sent me. This is when I notice he's holding a bag. The bag Dale usually hangs from the tree. I nod again and look at the table beside us. The man puts the bag down on the table, pulls the only other chair out from under it, and takes a seat. Sorry, I've had a long day. Then he just sits there, stares at the ground for a while, then stares at Roman and I. Neither of us say anything. Then Roman looks at him and points his little pudgy hand and says, Food a bringer! Something breaks open in the man, and he laughs. But he laughs too loud, like he isn't in control of himself. That's right, I'm the food bringer. Where is Dale? I ask challenging him more than I mean to. I don't want him in my house anymore. I just want him to leave very, very badly. He stands and rubs his neck with his giant hand. Then he comes over and takes Roman from my lap, and I want to pull him back down, but I don't want to hurt my baby. He just had to take care of some other business. He'll be back next week. I really want to believe him, because it's easier not because he seems trustworthy or because he brought us the food that Dale usually brings, but simply because I want everything to just go back to Roman and I, living in the woods all by ourselves. I stand up as well, try to take Roman back from the man, but he takes a step back. Sorry, I haven't held one of these in a while. Just for a little bit, if that's okay. It's not a request. I sit back down on the chair, push my hands underneath my thighs so he doesn't see them shaking. The man holds Roman, lifts him up and down. The boy squeals in delight. He's delighted by this new someone who can lift him so high so easily, lift him like he's flying across the room like an angel. The entire time, I can't do anything but sit there and watch. Sit and watch the stranger who came out of nowhere with Dale's bag and who will not give me back my baby. I grow tired sitting in the chair. All I want is to take Roman in my arms and go to bed. But it's like they both have found a new well of energy. Endless hours of play, until eventually, sitting crooked in the chair, I fall asleep. When I wake up, the room is empty. I jump up and run outside. Large boot prints that lead towards the cabin, and large boot prints that lead away. I run back inside ready to grab my fleece from the bed when I find him, curled up in his box and blanket, 
sound asleep, is Roman. He cries when I pull him up and hug him tight, but I don't care. I am reckless with fear. With him in my arms, screaming loudly into the forest, I go out after the footprints leading away from the hut, determined to track down the man. But the footprints go on forever, and I start to worry that it might snow and we won't be able to find our way back. Eventually, I give up and turn around. I'm helpless out here. I'm helpless and completely reliant on others. I set more traps for the rabbits. I start digging up the frozen ground and plant potatoes deep into the earth. Even though I fear the food the man brought is poisoned, I eat it anyway because I am too hungry to think. Days go by. The food starts appearing in the tree again, and I hope that it's Dale. But Dale's bag is still in our cabin. A new bag now contains our food. It's bigger, and the rations don't come every few days. Instead, they come every three weeks. I ignore the size of the footprints at the bottom of the tree. A year passes, then I start to relax. But then I start to see him. First, one afternoon when I return from the outhouse. He's standing about two, three feet away from the entrance of our cabin, just standing there, staring at the door. Roman is right behind me, and I turn to grab him, press my fingers against my lips like we're playing a game of quiet. He can sense my fear, and he plays along. Then we stand behind a tree, watching the man. Roman seems to have forgotten him. His eyes go wide with fear, his innocence lost. Eventually, the man turns and walks away, off into a random direction, disappears into the woods. We wait for a long time, wait until it's dark before we come out from behind the tree and run to the door and barricade it with what little we own. A month passes. Then there he is again, standing next to the outhouse. I can see him through the trees from the entrance of the cabin. He's just standing there, like before, like he's waiting. We barricade the door. It doesn't stop. Every three weeks, usually a day before or a day after the food is left in the tree, one of us spots him, always just standing there, close to the cabin or the outhouse, like he's waiting for us to make a move, like he's tempting us to confront him. Then we don't see him for a really long time. Another year passes, and this time... I think we're truly safe. It's summer, and the smell of the forest greets me when I wake up and shuffle into the other room so I can boil water for breakfast. Roman is still asleep. His box has become too big for him, and he sleeps on a mattress made of dried leaves and grasses, stuffed into pillowcases and sewn together with vine. I exit the bedroom and turn to start the wood stove, and there he is sitting in one of the two chairs at our table, facing me, emptiness in his eyes. Whatever battle he had inside of him is lost. I lied to you, he says quietly. I don't know Dale. Well, not while he was alive. I am Agent 32709 of the PP Division. I'll have to take you in now. I don't scream. No one can help us. We have no power here and nowhere to go. I'll go get Roman. I turn to walk back into the bedroom. Roman, 
Is that his name, Roman? I turn and look at the man. His back is slightly hunched. Yeah. But it won't be for long if you take us with you. I tried to make it hurt. Tried to make him realize what he's about to do. And for a second it looks like it might be working. And the man holds his face in his giant hands and shakes. But it only lasts an instant. He lowers his hands and his expression is empty. Yeah. He says, his dead eyes meeting mine. Not for long.